Hello, welcome to Theologizing Life with Anthony Cottrell and a mouthful of coffee, Matt Tracy. Ma- ma- mouthful of coffee, Tracy. We have uh, a guest, Andrew Gale. Uh, thank you for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. This is this will be fun. I'm anticipating a fun next hour of conversation. Kind of the point of our, our podcast that we call it Theologizing Life. So we, we talk about um, how what we think about God shapes the way we live. Um, and we like to explore diverse topics. But um, to begin, when we have guests, we sort of like to give them an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about themselves. So uh, sort of in a nutshell or the cliff notes, if you will, Andrew, what's, uh, what's your story? What are some things people should know about you and, and who you are? The first thing that is important for me to share with people is that I grew up in Kansas. I love Kansas. It is an important part of who I am. I'm still living off of the high of a week ago, which will date this podcast for people that listen to it, not in the, in the, in the distant future. But um, uh, a week ago, KU won the, uh, the NCAA championship. It was a glorious watch for, for me to sit and, and pace the floor. Um, but I, I love Kansas, love growing up there. Grew up as a, as a pastor's kid. My, my mom is a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor, both in the Church of God, so long history, and, and they both served um, in Kansas and other places as well, but, but spent a lot of time, a lot of their life in Kansas. Um, I moved to Indiana to go to Anderson University, went there, studied there, and then I was a youth pastor. And while I was a youth pastor, I took a missions trip, a, a small group to Mexico, one of the places that I love, and met my wife, who happens to be from Northern Indiana, um, but she was also on a trip down, down in Mexico as well, the same location. And so we met there and got married and Lived in Indianapolis for a number of years, then in Kentucky, and now we're in Anderson. Yeah, we have two wonderful kids. Eleanor is nine years old, and Eli is five. Um, yeah, so that's a, a snapshot of of my life. Yeah, that brings me here to Anderson, where we where we've been living now since 2015, so almost seven wow. years, which is really crazy to think about. Um, when I when I finished at the university, I kind of made a promise never to live here. And then I started living here immediately after uh, for two years and then moved away and now have come back. So um, those promises we shouldn't make, but uh, we, right. we love what we love what we're doing, love where we are. Um, but yeah, we're in Anderson, Indiana now. That's it's like funny you mentioned that. Everyone who lives in Indiana has that same exact story. Like I think it's probably I, true. My wife and I vowed we wouldn't be living here, but we've been here since 2017. So I just feel like every, everyone who... Uh, lives in Indiana has some kind of story where it's like there's some orbit that like pulls you in yeah (laughs) yeah that's funny well I I grew up in Indiana and never necessarily made the promise that I wouldn't live not live in Indiana but I prefer warmer weather and so after college I got a job as a youth pastor in Warsaw Indiana and I sort of you know promised myself I wouldn't go any further north like I did not want to be (laughs) any closer to Michigan than that and here I am, I'm in Goshen, Indiana, and I'm like 30 minutes from the Michigan line. And, yeah, it's just, uh, and I'm still, we, you know, the, at the date of the recording of this, I'm still waiting for spring to come in full swing. Yeah, but, it's been ridiculous. We got snow over the weekend in Anderson. That I was don't want to talk about it. I, know. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> when, and two weeks prior to that, we were on vacation and um, we were in on the beach in warm climate. So we, we need we need spring and summer to come. Agreed. So, Andrew, can you tell us what your role is at the Church of God and a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm executive director 
at Global Strategy, uh, which is the international arm for Church of God Ministries. And uh, we at, at Global Strategy, the, the, the phrase that we use over and over to talk about what we do. And uh, when, I came, when I came into this role, it was one of the first things I felt like I needed to do is figure out <laughs> what, what is Global Strategy about? You know, we have these organizations that, that have really specific purpose and, and what they're doing. And I felt like for global, um, we're a 120 some year, 100 uh, teens year old organization that we did not have this really defined purpose because we did all kinds of things. And so I started to kind of process what we do and, and what it came down to is we walk alongside the local church globally. And so what we do in each local context around the world is different, but we do it because it's what the local church feels God's called them to do. And so we walk with them in, in that ministry, whatever that looks like, whether it's hospitals or, or wells or schools or, or just outreach ministry to uh, homeless population or whatever, whatever it is, there is uh, opportunity for us to support and, and walk with the local church. And so that's what Global Strategy does. We're, we're the International Army Church and Ministries. We have churches in 90 countries around the world. We have about 60 missionaries that serve in about 24 different countries. And then we also have about 75 uh, development projects uh, in 35 countries. So a broad, a broad, a broad swath of work that we do. Uh, but then my role is just to help coordinate these efforts. It's to work with our personnel that we have on the ground. We have regional coordinators that are in charge of our missionaries and projects in each of the regions. And, and we pull them together to help us think about the best ways that we can support the global church. And I lead a team here in the office that, that supports those efforts um, uh, from, from the United States. So, and, and, yeah. We talk about global, but we also have work in Native American ministries here in the U.S. as well. So the U.S. is a part of the work we do. But anything anything that's cross-cultural kind of falls into our purview. You never hear a whole lot about Native American uh, missionary work. And it's so important because that's it's a very, it seems like an unreached, you know, people that live yeah, absolutely. in our backyard, <laughs> literally. Yeah. So. I actually just got back last week from visiting uh, Tim and Kim Wardell and Robin Carey Cotton, who uh, work in Allen, South Dakota at, um, uh, with the Oglala Lakota Sioux. And it was a really incredible experience to see what their life is like and what, what day-to-day -day work is. But you're exactly right. It's, an, it's, a, it's a powerfully cross-cultural experience that is just, I mean, in our backyard, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of off topic, but I'm just, I'm just curious. I have a friend who, has, his sister is a missionary in Romania. Um, and they're kind of feeling the the pressure from the what's going on in Ukraine. I just wanted to know absolutely if you have anyone that you work with over in Ukraine uh, in the Church of God, uh, or if you have any connection there and and some of the things that they're dealing with. Yeah, we do. We have um, about a dozen churches across Ukraine, and uh, we have churches in Russia as well. And there was a really deep connection between those two, the Ukrainian and the Russian churches. Uh, it's been really complicated for us to engage there well because of just a lot of the the sanctions and the things that are going on so we are working really closely with some of our european churches that are able to engage there well so the church of god in germany has really strong ties across the region and so we're working very closely with with uh, the church of god in germany and their social arm which is called kinder Hilfswerk, and uh, they're doing a lot of sending in aid and humanitarian necessities into the region. Uh, we were working with a church that was there in central Ukraine that was supporting uh, a number of internally displaced people, IDPs, that uh, were 
not able yet to get out of the country, but we're still staying in Ukraine. A number of those have now fled and are in places in Poland, in um, some of them are going to Germany. There, we have a, a, a missionary unit in Hungary, uh, Dan and Christy Kim, who have been uh, a part of helping to take some of these, uh, the, the resources to the border of uh, Poland and Ukraine. So their food and gas and some of the, the things that are needed can get to folks there. And then they're also taking in a couple now refugees that have left Hungary. And then the Church of God in Hungary is starting, a, uh, is starting to think about what it would look like to do a refugee-style ministry. How do, they, how do they do this in a way that uses any kind of government resources that might be there, not recreating the wheel, but yet being able to, to support some of these Ukrainian Church of God folks who are leaving and create systems that will, will help them to be successful in Hungary for at least a period of time. And the challenge is we just don't know how long that is. Is that going to be a month? Is that going to be years? Um, I think the hope for most of the Ukrainians that we're in conversation with, the hope is that this would be short-lived and they can get back to their homes and, and start rebuilding. But we've hoped since the beginning that it would be short-lived and it continues to go on. And so I think we just continue to brace for what the long-term effects of this will be. So yeah, we're working with the church and we, we have a refugee ministry in Paris that that has has uh, been working called At Home through Samir Salibi and and, and they've also offered to take in refugees, the Church of God in Italy. We have across the region, we have people that are really stepping up to, to take on folks from the Church of God that are fleeing. Um, and we had churches that were within miles of the Russian border um, that have all now been evacuated. So yeah, That's difficult situation. That's an episode in and of itself, <laughs> I think. Yeah, and Nate Chapman and I talked about that. We, we, uh, he's, he's the one that knows much more about that than I do. He's the regional coordinator that's there on the ground. Um, and he shared more about that. Yeah, and, and could talk a lot more about that than I even could. God has a heart for refugees. I mean, the Old Testament, if you read it, that's a lot of what it talks about is, is being hospitable to the refugee and Absolutely. Uh, that's a question that came up as you were as you were telling your story. So. Well, can I share one of my favorite my favorite things that I learned when I was in doing education and stuff at academics? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's connected to this idea of refugees. So, and I've shared it a lot. So it's getting it gets old, but it's one of my favorite things. I was reading this um, this book that was talking about it was comparing cultures of the time of the Old Testament with one another. So things like looking at Hammurabi's code and some of these other things that were that were around and about literature, pieces that were around and about archaeological finds connected to the time of the Old Testament. And, and one of the things that this researcher found is that there is a plethora of, of empires, kingdoms of the time of the Old Testament, where it is, uh, and specifically early, early, uh, early, early Hebrew history uh, that talked about the poor and the widow, widow and the orphan. Um, that became kind of like the, you know, the trifecta of poverty in, in the culture. And, and kings would, all, would often talk like about, use it as propaganda, that the kings take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan. But what this researcher found is he could find nowhere in any other culture where the, the refugee, the stranger, the immigrant was a part of that, that list of, of three um, until you hit the Old Testament, when this suddenly becomes, you know, what Nicholas Waltersdorf calls the, the quartet of the vulnerable, where you have the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. And so I always think like, that is something that is uniquely Judeo-Christian. I mean, it's uniquely yeah. part of our history that, and, and it makes sense because these are the people that were exiled, that were in the Exodus, that were, that they were the stranger. So mm -hmm. then when they, as they start talking about what God calls them to, 
the stranger has to be a part of that because they experience that. And I think we miss that so often in our, in our, in our world today that I think you're exactly right. There's a special place, um, you know, in God's heart for, for refugees and for those that are, especially those that are forcefully displaced from where, from where they are, which happens so much, so much around the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony, get us back on track because I could go on. <laughs> I know. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. No, it's, no, it's okay. It's good. So um, one, one little caveat off track thing real quick is Andrew works with global strategy of the church of God. I'm a pastoring now in a church of God, but it's a church of God. Anderson um, is, is a distinguishing factor like to throw in there. Sometimes uh, I, I had a friend Google church of God and um, there's some others that would, would affirm some things that there's some out there that have church of God in name that affirm things that maybe fall uh, outside of or dangerously close to being outside of orthodoxy. So just want to know we are <laughs> church of God Anderson within orthodox uh, Protestant evangelical Christianity. Yeah, um, Wesley, Wesley Holiness Stream connected, you know, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, as you said, one of the things you do, your mission is come alongside churches globally. Um, yeah. One of the ways you do that is you come alongside churches that are looking to take um, short-term mission trips and you help equip them for the cross-cultural experience. I think I have a ton of questions surrounding that whole thing, actually, but um, uh, we'll get into those. But the yeah. cross-cultural element, like, why is that training, like, why do people need sort of trained or equipped or prepared to hop on a plane and go to another country and, and engage another culture? What, yeah. what does that look like? Why is that important? first, I'll start by talking about, you know, when I was first starting out as a, I was a youth pastor for a few years while I was working on my master's and I grew up going on missions trips and was very passionate about that and wanted, wanted students that I was connected to, to go on missions trips. Um, I, I, my life, my whole trajectory was changed by a cross-cultural experience. And so I, I want other people to experience that. So uh, I, I did some reading, trying to figure out how do we, how do we do this well? And it came as a bit of a shock to me that uh, in this book that I read that many people were saying that n- no life change actually happens on a cross-cultural experience. And I read that and I thought, wow, that's a little disappointing. And I kept reading uh, this, this person who, you know, said, you know, no life change comes across cross experience that statistically speaking, nothing changes unless the person has gone through pre-trip training before they go to, to process the experience they're going to have. And then even more importantly, that they debrief that experience when they get back. And if you look at social psychology, like this is, this has been tested and proven over and over, you know, with ideas like contact theory, just going and being in contact with something that's different than you doesn't actually change you. Um, what changes you is having the opportunity to process that experience and figure out how that fits into your world. How does your world get get changed and challenged by these cross-cultural experiences. And so that's when I became really passionate about trying to figure out how do we help people or before they, before they step on a plane, before they even really process going on a trip, think about how they fit into the broader picture of what God's doing around the world. And then after they go and experience this, when they come back, how do they talk about that? And how do we, how do we allow that to shape who we are um, when we return? And so, uh, yeah, from, from, from then on, you know, a big part of what, what I felt passionate about is how we train people before and after they go on these kinds of experiences. I mean, so that's one piece of it. And that, that's kind of very um, us focused, right? You know, what's our experience? The other piece is that when we go and travel across culture, we can do a lot of damage if we have not thought about 
what mm. what we bring with us, the baggage that we bring with us. You know, there's a, a anthropologist that talks about glasses that we put on. You know, when we see the world through our own cultural glasses, not everybody else sees the world the way we do. And we when we try to have them put on our glasses, they don't. It doesn't work for them. You know, and so what we have to do is actually understand the world through their perspective. Um, and and honestly, if we believe that the Holy Spirit is is at work in the world, then we believe the Holy Spirit reaches out to people in their own cultural context. And so we have to be cautious not to, not to bring, we can often bring more than just the gospel with us. We bring our culture with us as well. And so trying to help people recognize that and, uh, and, and be cautious in their engagement. Now, some people that leads them to not engage at all. And I would, I would say that that's also not, you know, what, what we're called to, but it's find a way to engage in healthy and holistic ways by, by recognizing our own culture and what we bring with us. So those are kind of the two, the kind of the us centered version and then the, the, the other centered version of, of why cultural intelligence, cultural competency is really important before people travel. Yeah. That's, uh, I really like how you said that we, sometimes we need to recognize, you said something like, we need to recognize that sometimes we bring uh, more than just the gospel with us, we bring our culture. And I've gotten the impression that sometimes as uh, Americans, we can sometimes be a little loud <laughs> with that culture when we bring it to. Yeah. So it's not just like we bring it, but we, we sort of, yeah, we, we bring it in sometimes with megaphones. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way. Good way. Yeah, I think it. I think the, oftentimes we don't even realize that's happening, right? You know, and that's the thing that's most dangerous is we don't realize what's cultural and 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 what's not. You know what? There's a great book, uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, that goes through a lot of the ways that we read scripture that that are uh, problematic in in Western culture, and you know, just a really quick one for for. For people that are listening that might go, I don't know what you mean by more than just the gospel. I, I love, I, and I use this a lot when I talk to churches, that, to ask them to retell the story of the prodigal son, um, and then to, to ask why the prodigal son ended up eating with the pigs, and, and most people will say he squandered his wealth, um, which is true, that's absolutely in scripture, but also listed in that same paragraph is that there was a famine in the land. It also lists that uh, the people in the community didn't help him, and if you really dig into to some of the cultural aspects of that, uh, you know, they, they talked about when they did this study in other co countries like Ethiopia, places that have experienced famine. The first thing they said, you know, of why why the, the, the son had to go eat with the pigs is because of famine, you know, because we end up reading a lot of what we what we connect with. You know, we're, we're a culture that thinks a lot about wealth. And so, of course, that's what we connect with. But we, then we end up missing these other elements that are really powerfully important. And, and the idea of other people not coming along to help this person in a communal context where where the community taking care of somebody would be absolutely vital would be absurd to the readers of that mm -hmm. new testament and that would have been just as stark as that young person you know the, the the young son squandering his wealth but again we miss those things so then we end up talking about how important wealth is when yes absolutely that's part of it but we're missing these really important other aspects of the story that that our brothers and sisters around the world may see differently than we do that is great. And that book is, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a tad bit academic for, for just as a, a note, but it's, it's really good. Yeah. I think that was one of the first books you recommended to me. And me? Then, yeah. And you've wow. recommended like hundreds of books to me. <laughs> That's what I actually got. Here. Yeah. I spend too much time in books. That's for sure. Kenneth Bailey is another great one. If you want to get down to cultural context, anything by Kenneth Bailey is worth picking up. 
He has the book. It seems like it's everything through somebody's eyes, but it's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He also has Paul mm. Through Mediterranean Eyes. Great books to really dig into the cultural aspects of what's going on in the New Testament that, again, we tend to miss because we're not <laughs> we're not uh, Middle Eastern New Testament, you know, time folks. And so we miss all the cultural things, especially as individualistic as we are. We read that through everything. And that that really shapes the way that we read the gospel. And and, and honestly makes it very problematic for us to take the gospel into collectivistic cultures. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. as as Americans, as Westerners, we almost have a bigger barrier than a lot of people think. Our Western background in like reading, yes, reading literature from a culture that is collectivistic and um, very much communally oriented where we're so individualistic and so uh, wealth driven. It's, it's, it's a different world, really, that you kind of have to put a little bit more effort into exploring. Yeah, absolutely. This, the training that you, you mentioned, obviously, as evangelicals, we believe, you know, we're all called to share the gospel. We're all called to be, quote unquote, missionaries. But uh, say I'm not someone who's called or equipped for full-time missionary work overseas. How does a short-term mission trip or just the training process for that short-term mission trip benefit me in my, you know, everyday walk with Jesus. As Christians, we're a part of a global church and we often center ourselves as the center of that and we're not anymore. And so I think that this kind of training helps us to realize that our culture, our worldview is not the center of Christianity. You know, uh, one of the most startling statistics, uh, David Livermore in one of his, his books, Serving with Eyes Wide Open, another great resource, um, he talks about this, that uh, in 1800, 1% of Christians lived outside of Western Europe and North America. So Western Europe and North America contained 99% of people that called themselves Christians in 1800. And I don't know whether he's talking about Protestant, I don't, I, I don't know the specifics of that, but we'll... we'll um, We'll hold that in suspense for, for now. But 1% outside of Western Europe and North America. In 1900, I mean, 1800, 1900 was a huge year, a huge uh, century of missions work. And um, after all of that big push by especially Protestant missions throughout the world, by 1900, 10% of Christians lived outside of Western Europe and North. So still 90% were within Western Europe and North America. But the shift that I think surprises people is 1900 to 2000, again, another large missions push, the global church just exploded. So by 2000, 65% of people um, that called themselves Christians lived outside of Western Europe and North America. And that wasn't necessarily because of a decrease in Christians in Western Europe and North America. It has to do with population booms of Christianity outside of those regions. And so what what ends up happening is that when we look at our bookshelves of people that we're listening to, they tend to all look like us. um, And they tend to be fairly uh, white. They tend to be fairly male-dominated. Uh, but uh, they tend to be fairly wealthy or from, from from North American, Western Europe communities. But the reality is that the, the average Christian today is is a person of color, is female, is in, in living not in destitute poverty because poverty levels have come up, but still living in, in a lower socioeconomic class than what we would um, uh, put ourselves in or, or others that we um, engage with. And so the church has expanded and grown and become this global movement, but yet our, our worldview still tends to be very insular and tends to be very thin. And so that, that's the big piece for me is that the, the church in the U.S. needs to start reading folks that are outside the U.S. It needs to start engaging with these because there's so much that we have to learn um, from these voices. And so 
I think this kind of a training begins that process. So we actually this uh, we actually created some free training that's online. So first, there's different ways you can do training. I think it would be great for people to go through cultural intelligence training where they learn about um, the different cultural values, individualism, uh, collectivism, high, low context, those kind of pieces. But um, we actually have some free training online. If you go to um, our website is chogglobal, C-H-O-G-G-L-O-B-A-L.org slash resources. And then there's free trip training material. But I think that like you're saying, this can be really good for Sunday school classes. I mean, for Wednesday night, I mean, for Bible studies, like it's the kind of material that you can engage with that will begin to open, hopefully open Christians up to a broader view of, of their faith and have them start asking some questions to go, man, who else should I be listening to? Who else should I be reading? You know, where else should I be engaging in these kind of conversations? Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. That's a fascinating topic to think about. I, you're probably way more familiar with this than I am. Uh, by the way, we're going to, I'll put links to that in the, the show notes and everything. So Perfect. people can, can check that out for themselves. But there was, I did a intercultural ministry class for my, my MDiv. And we did, we talked a little about uh, cultural intelligence. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me is that, you know, some of the, the countries that Americans send missionaries to most often are different from us in value. So for Guatemala, I think is, is one of the, the more popular countries for Americans to send missionaries to, but culturally they are on a different spectrum than Americans. And so there's a lot of disconnect there. Um, Absolutely. You can give more examples of that, but I, I just think that's, it's important for us to, to realize that our view of our faith and our experience with it is not the norm uh, by yeah. any means. Which is why, you know, for us as an organization, we've shifted somewhat from what maybe people traditionally think of when they think of missions. Um, and uh, so when people think of missions, they often think of what, what we might call like first wave missions, like missionaries going and evangelizing people um, and talking about their faith, which is very important. But you're exactly right. Like that becomes very problematic or difficult when we think about uh, someone coming from one cultural context and then jumping into another cultural context and trying to share their faith. What we think about ourselves as more second or third wave, where we are actually sending missionaries that work with the local church. It's the local church that's doing that evangelism. It's the local church that knows their culture, knows their context. They're the ones that engage in the community. We come alongside them and help them think creatively, help them process. You know, a lot of our pastors are bivocational. So they may say things like, you know, we really want to start a school, but we have no idea where to begin with that. Well, our missionaries can do some of the research to help them think through what are some of the, the ways you can do that. What are some because they have the time and resource to be able to pour, you know, the the the, the needed thought process into that, and then they can come back and present that and, and connect in. So again, that's a different way, a different model of thinking about missions. Because you're exactly right, our our missionaries aren't going to be the most beneficial at trying to share their faith. With the people on the, with the people they're engaging with in, in a country where they're serving, but they can help to train, help to engage, help to encourage the local church that's doing that. You know, we think of ourselves more of like Paul in his later years when he's when he's you know in prison and doing the encouragement and and and, and those kinds of conversations than Paul in his early years when he's on the ground um, with these with these locations. So it's a different model, but we think one that that allows us to utilize the gifts and skills of those that are already on the ground. We believe the Holy Spirit's already at work there. And then our, our folks, our global personnel just engage then um, with those leaders on the ground. Yeah. It's kind That's of, awesome. it avoids the, the idea like us Americans can come in and do it better than you can. 
you know, absolutely. You know the, they know their own people. Um, yep. That they've built that that rapport with them and they have that experience in their communities and they know how to do it best. And, and you're just there to come alongside them and help them out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly it. So Andrew, I'm going to go off script a little bit of, of some questions that we were going to ask um, because we, we kind of danced around this topic of cultural um, intelligence, like misreading scripture through Western eyes. And we kind of like alluded to it. And I want to dive into that a little bit because I found that one of the things that has helped me be able to engage people that are different from me or that I don't agree with is uh, some cross-cultural experiences, encountering people's stories, reading. Um, you mentioned David Livermore. I read his book, um, Cultural Intelligence. What, I've, what I feel like I've seen, you know, it's not a secret that we are in a fairly uh, divisive sort of context in America right now, socially and politically and things. And there's what I would say, and I would say there's a bit of tribalism, and then you mix it with our faith, and there's people's view of what's biblical and what's not biblical. But sometimes when I step out of that, I see that there is some, some demonizing of other views that aren't necessarily wrong, they're different, or uh, that sometimes there are, there, there's a, what David Livermore calls a narrow, uh, narrow categorizing uh, that happens. Mm. And I feel like it just contributes to the us versus them mentality. So I, I feel like when we have a broader cultural awareness of things that are different, instead of only viewing it as right or wrong, like this is the right way to do it, this is the wrong way when we can have a category for there is a different way or we allow other voices to speak in even to interpretation of scripture, I feel like that helps create the building blocks for unity. So what are your thoughts on the importance of sort of that cultural awareness for unity in diversity? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that when uh, what cultural intelligence can tend to do for us is help us to realize that the world is maybe a little more gray than what we had hoped that it would be. The challenge is that black and white helps us feel comfortable. Um, it, it, and I'm sure you guys have heard, uh, you know, the, the, the discussion of I'm trying to think of who first started it. Um, bounded set, bounded set versus centered set. So talking about the fact that we, we create boundaries to say who's in and out. So this is a mathematical idea that, you know, here are the things that are within, you draw a circle around a bunch of dots that are within the, you know, the, the, the boundary. And those are the things that are in First, That's what a bounded set. A centered set is when things are moving towards the center versus away from the center. That that's what decides what's in and out. And so, um, you know, this missiologist was trying to, to express that. I thought I had his name. I had it just a second ago, but um, that, that we, as a church, we need to be more, we need to be cautious about having really tight boundaries. Um, and instead, look at who's moving towards, how are we moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus? And that being our our our, um, our measuring stick, per se, you know, the way that we think about that. But the challenge is, is that there's a comfortability that comes with with knowing who's in and who's out. And and when you start working in cross-cultural ministry, it becomes a lot more complicated to, un to because people's worldviews are so different. And what seems very obviously wrong in one situation, you know, may not be. I, don't know how many times I've had people, as I've been in other countries, you ask for directions and they tell you really clearly where you're supposed to go. And then you find out they've told you exactly the opposite direction of where you should be going. 
and you think, wow, that person just lied to me. But the reality is that person in their, in their mind, they weren't lying to you. In their mind, what they were doing was as an outsider, they want to give you some kind of answer. It would have been very inhospitable, inhospitable for them to say, I have no idea and just leave you, leave you out there in the middle of nowhere. So they're going to at least point you somewhere because at least going somewhere is better than going nowhere. So in their mind, they're being hospitable. In my mind, they're lying to me and getting me farther off track. But again, that, so the different ways that we look at the exact same situation. And, um, and, and so I think that those things, it becomes complicated. You know, is that, is that lying or is that an attempt to be hospitable? I, it's, hard, it's hard for us to say, you know, directly. There's a, there's a book that I've been reading, I read recently that I think is really fascinating. Um, Adam Grant's book, Think Again. I don't know if you guys have read it. Um, not, a, not a Christian book, um, more of just a social organizational development book. But he talks about uh, confident humility. So he talks about the balance between mm. confidence and competence. And so we end up being overconfident in things that we're really not competent in. And he said the sweet spot is to find this balance of being confident, but also having humility, recognizing that we can be confident, but also recognize we don't have all the answers. We don't know all the situation. And we're never going to, because the more we dig, the more we find out you know, more and more about something. And so he, he challenges us to, to live in this space of confident humility. Um, which seems like a, you know, an oxymoron, but uh, it's a really fascinating, really helpful way. And to me, that's kind of what, when I get into these difficult conversations, that's the space that I'm trying to live in. How can I know what I think about right now? Like, it doesn't mean that we have to be, that we have to totally throw everything out the window. This isn't about being, believing that there is no truth. Like this isn't, this isn't postmodernism as scary as that is to some people. Like it's none of that. It's recognizing that, that, I only have so much of the information. And so I enter into a conversation trying to understand more and more of the information. He, he actually says that we, we end up being one of three people, a politician where we're trying to convince people of what we believe, a preacher where we're preaching to them what we believe, or a, what's the third one? A preacher, a politician, or a, it's another P word. I can't think of it, but he says we need to be a scientist. Instead of being those three, we need to be someone who's constantly digging and digging and digging for more truth, constantly doing more experiments rather than trying to preach our worldview. And I thought that was really fascinating. I think that's, as, a, as someone who's interested in cross-cultural ministry, that's so much of what I feel like I do every day is, is asking more and more questions and going, okay, why does this person think this way about this? I think that's so, um, I think that's so helpful. And it does, it can make people uneasy to talk about uh, gray areas. But what I found with that bounded set is the boundary of who's in and who's out is inconsistent depending on the religious tradition you're you're from, your background. And by tradition, I don't mean uh, other religions. I mean the religious tradition within Christianity or the denomination, if you will. So like we create boundaries, but you know, you're not really saved or you're not really in, or you're not really a Christian if fill in the blank. And we start adding all these other things uh, to Christ. But what I like about the centered idea is there are people who are maybe really far from the center, like really far from Christ, but they are heading towards him. Their trajectory yeah. is toward him. And then there are people who've been believers for a long time and are maybe closer to Christ. Um, but there's certain things in their life or viewpoints that are sort of heading away from the heart of Christ. Like I, I give me as a pastor who would be maybe interested in discipling someone, give me the person who's really far away from Christ, but yeah. heading towards his heart over the person who's got a ton of religious background and baggage, but their heart is heading away from Christ. Yeah. It's a very, um, very fair, pharisaic 
mindset, I think, to yeah. apply black and white, right and wrong to things that are different, but not sinful. You know, things yeah. that we might be unfamiliar with, but Jesus would honor and celebrate. I think that's a lot of what Jesus preached about in the Gospels is the, the mindset of exclusivism, especially with the Pharisees, Some someone who's coming from a very religious background, who's heart is not oriented toward the grace of God. Does I think Paul that ring a bell? Oh yeah. Yeah. Paul Hebert. That's, that's the guy. That's the guy. I was coming, I was coming with Peter. I knew it was yeah. a Paul Hebert. Thank you. Yes. And any of my friends, are, I mean, my missiologist friends are going to be so disappointed. I cannot come up with his name because he's like <laughs> the premier missiologist when it comes to things, but it's a little early. My coffee's still, still settling in. Still working. So still working. Yeah. Well, I'm going to steer us back a little bit to the missions, short-term missions trip conversation. I'm going to kind of combine a couple questions we have into one discussion question. But one of the things I've wrestled with, I read the book, um, When Helping Hurts. There's another one I'm familiar with, but I haven't read, but uh, Toxic Charity, I haven't read that one yet. Um, but yep. there's sort of uh, questions around the value of short-term missions. You mentioned the research about like, there's no a real life change unless they process it. But then there's also yeah. people will look at the invest, the financial investment, like yeah. for a short-term team to get plane tickets, housing, and then food and all the cost. Uh, it's usually, I would say on average, depending on where you go, probably between 1500 to, to two, three grand per person that they have to fundraise to go to, you know, um, Guatemala, like we said, Matt mentioned for uh, a week or even two weeks, um, and do some work and then come back. And like, wouldn't it be better to just send all that money to an organization there on the ground that, and resource them that way? Or, or is there, is there value in short-term mission trips or does it just make us Americans feel good that we did something <laughs> helpful for people? What's, uh, could, could you just sort of speak to that dilemma? I, I yeah. Guess. Well, this is a great question. And honestly, it doesn't have an easy answer. I had a life changing experience on a missions trip. You know, it was just before my eighth grade year, my youth pastor took a bunch of us youth down to Mexico. I, uh, at the time could not speak a, a lick of Spanish and I'm very chatty as is very obvious on this podcast that I like to talk. And so it was very difficult for me to be with folks that I couldn't have any conversation with, you know, and so I came back and started learning Spanish and uh, took Spanish through high school and college. And you know th th that, that one moment really changed. It wasn't just that one moment because it was other experiences connected to it. But, but that experience you know, put me on a trajectory that, that has impacted my life um, in ways that I probably can't even begin to imagine. Um, so there is value in that sense. At the same time, I think the question you're asking is exactly a right, the right question to be asking. And I think we spend tons of money on trips that, where we take, we take youth and adults too down to go and do, to paint the, uh, the paint the inside of a church that the next week another group comes and paints a different color the inside of the church. Like that, that story is ubiquitous across the missions world. And it's a sad story of this reality of what, what missions um, can become when it becomes all about those experiences and traveling. Um, for where I land, I, I, I tend to be a centrist on lots of things. And so I'm not a person that wants to just throw out, you know, throw out missions altogether, trips or, or go wholesale. Um, so what, what I 
one of the things that I tried, piloted, and, and felt like I had positive experiences with is rather than doing the, what I call a cattle call missions trip, where it's like, who wants to go? And you invite anybody that wants to go on this trip and you have 50 youth that go on a missions trip or you have whatever. Finding a small group of people who are interested and passionate about cross-cultural ministry and involving them in that kind of an experience is very different than kind of a cattle call anyone can go. And so we tried piloting that. We, uh, 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 I was a youth missions pastor at a church on the north side of Indianapolis, and we did a thing called the Youth Missions Institute, where we took 10 students um, from the youth group, and for a year, they met monthly together to talk about missions-related things. We served uh, locally in, in the, the church we were part of, and at the end of that, they got to go on a missions trip, just that group of 10, and it was an incredibly powerful experience because the conversations that came out of it were so much more, uh, were so much richer, so much deeper, so much more robust because one, they had processed it together throughout the year. And two, they were people that were really passionate about ministry and about, about cross-cultural ministry. A number of those folks ended up going and serving or, or working in the church in some, in some way um, because it was a focused group rather than just this broad, anybody wants to go. And then you end up getting I mean, I've had people who say, you know, my, my teenager isn't listening to me. I think he needs to go on a missions trip and learn how good he has it. Like those kinds of people, that's not going to be a positive experience for that missions group. If th those are the reasons that people are going on trips. And that tends to be what ends up happening on these kind of larger big group experiences. And we also did this at Church of God Ministries where we had a thing called A18, um, which is based on Acts 1-8. It was bringing a group of folks together to go on a missions trip. And again, had a really positive experience, about 12 students, smaller group able to process. We went and we were down at Warner University in Lake Wales, Florida, and did some cross-cultural uh, cultural intelligence training, and then went and visited the church in the Dominican Republic, and got to see and be walk alongside the church in a really powerful way. It wasn't, it wasn't construction work. It wasn't even a VBS. It was really just visiting the church, encouraging the church, learning from them, um, and again, had a really powerful experience, and a number of those people have gone on to serve in different ways, um, and so, I, so I, I think that we have to find that balance, right? That, that center ground where um, I, I don't think just doing a mission trip to do a mission trip is any longer a really healthy thing to do. I also don't think that in the current environment that we live in globally, it's just difficult to travel. It's going to get more and more expensive to travel, I think. You know, I think we're past the time when it was really easy just to go on those trips. And I think now it makes sense to be more selective in the way we do it. And that's not to keep people out, but it's to make sure that that group can connect and process and learn together. I, I appreciate your perspective on that. And I tend to agree with that, like central, you know, centrist, like not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like I was on a mission trip and asked some of the, the people with the, the ministry we partnered with. And one of the things I loved about that is that ministry we partnered with, we did some work we did do some construction work, but it was because they were actually expanding and constructing a new building yeah. in it. It wasn't like just special for us because we came and it also wasn't yeah. um, something that stopped when we left. Uh, that's one of the things I loved about that trip was their ministry continued doing what they did after we mm -hmm. left. We just came along as a resource, as an encouragement. And I was talking to the people there and they also shared about how there is value in the brothers and sisters in Christ feeling support and connection with Absolutely. Their, uh, their American brothers and sisters in Christ. And 
I'll just jump in and say like, that's exactly right. And I think that that's the difference between like earlier, we were talking about the us centered and the them centered, you know, things about why we do, why we want to do training for cross-cultural. It's the same thing. Like there's us centered reasons that we do it. And what you're describing is the, is the other centered reasons is that we have folks that when, when we go and visit them, that encouragement is, is what keeps them engaged and, and working in the work they're doing. Cause it can be very it's not like there's a church on every corner and some places around the world, they may be the only Christian church in their entire community. And so having other Christians come and say, Hey, we're with you can be an incredibly powerful experience. So I think you're hitting on exactly an important point of why we can't just get rid of these experiences. The other thing that you highlighted too, is your personal transformation and how it shaped the trajectory of what you're doing now. And I would say I went on a mission trip that cross-cultural experience shaped me in a lot of ways being exposed to developing um, countries and stuff, I think planted a passion to care about global poverty, to care about clean water issues, to care about trafficking in other countries that I was pretty insulated from. Um, And it put a passion in me too for supporting child sponsorship and advocating for child sponsorship ministries and things that just caring about stuff happening uh, in other places around the world besides my own sort of American, you know, what's happening in my town sort of mentality. So I think it is transformative for individuals. I just think being strategic and being smart about it is important. That's another conversation, but Matt, sorry, go ahead. I love the idea that there's kind of a higher level of discipleship that is involved in uh, sending people to other countries to minister. Cause it's not, it shouldn't be just a flippant decision, you know, we've all seen like the people who go and, you know, take pictures with babies and don't really do anything or, you know, it's basically just poverty tourism. Yeah. And that that's always made me really uncomfortable. Um, and, and I've always kind of wrestled with that, but I, I like the idea that, that you shared the, the cohesion of the group, uh, people that know what they're getting into and people that are passionate about what, that, what they're getting into. And they're, they're not just looking for a cool, you know, yeah. experience. For some, it does awaken that call. Like there are young students who've gone and then end up on a short-term mission trips. And then they do become, you know, international ministries. Like it awakens that calling or sense to ministry for some, like, I don't think we can throw those stories out either, you know? Yeah. But. What is one of your favorite stories about your work? Yeah, this is such a hard question. Cause I think there's so many stories um, uh, around the world that I could point to that are just exciting things that are happening. I'm a person that loves connections. I mean, even, you know, before we started this podcast, we were talking about just connections and I love seeing where God is at work and, and how people are interrelated. And so um, a number of the stories that I think, you know, are really cool are things that are points of connection. So, you know, in Latin America during COVID, when, when things were shut down, um, the church in Latin America, uh, decided that they wanted to plant a church in El Salvador. This is something that they wanted to do. Uh, and I say they want to do it. There's a, a leadership, a regional leadership uh, body um, called the Inter-American Conference. It's not called that in Spanish, but that's the English, English version, Anglicized version of what it is. So uh, the Inter-American Conference, and, and it's made up of uh, pastors from across the region. Uh, there are three leaders from uh Uh, one from Bolivia, one from Honduras, one from Chile that make up the leadership team. And, and one of the things they wanted to do is they wanted to plant a church in El Salvador because it was the last Spanish speaking country in Latin America that did not have a church of God presence. 
and they wanted to, to have a church there and engage in that community. And it had had a presence a long time ago, but it had, it had dwindled. And so uh, they reached out to us and worked with our uh, uh, regional leaders on the ground, Jason and Abby Torgeson. And then they reached out to the Concilio, so the Spanish-speaking uh, part of the Church of God in the United States, uh, which also has connections throughout Latin America. And together with the Inter-American Conference, with Global Strategy, and with the Concilio, planted a church in El Salvador, I mean, um, a house church, you know, in, uh, in August in the height of COVID. And so um, those to me are really cool moments when the church gets to work together. We didn't do this. This wasn't, it wasn't funded by American dollars. It wasn't an American that went down and did it. It was truly working with leaders on the ground that had a passion for this and just helping to resource them and think creative about how we could do this together. I've loved the connections that have been able to uh, happen during COVID, as terrible as COVID has been. Um, and it's been a lot more complicated globally than it has been for our U.S. churches. And I think we sometimes forget that, but also seeing some really awesome things happen, you know, like there were some uh, groups. So, so the Asia Pacific leaders were supposed to meet together in person and it didn't happen. So they did it virtually. And I was on a call. This was last October. Um, I was on a call that um, had people from, I think, 19 different countries. I'm not going to remember the statistics correctly, but I know that there were seven different languages being spoken. Zoom has the ability to do different language channels, and there were seven different languages going on. And so we had interpreters in each of these countries. There were nearly 100 people connected um, on devices. And some of them, I mean, some of them were pastors that their, their, their camera was, you know, in their house, and you could see their dirt floors and them and their family sitting on a bed in this in this call, and you're, you're thinking, there's this family would not have the resources to fly to another country and be a part of this of this meeting had it happened in person. But because it's happening virtually, and because they have access to internet, they're able to hear. I mean, there were there were speakers from from different places that were able to present, and they were able to be a part of those meetings because of technology. And to me, like sitting in this room where you have seven different languages going, it was chaos at first. I mean, just absolute chaos as they were trying to figure out how to do all of this. And it was also just beautiful to see all of these different people coming together to talk about, um, you know, one of the things was um, presented by Michaela McCurdy, who works on our staff as our disaster relief. And she did just a, an overview of how do you prepare and think about preparing your communities for disaster. And again, none, some of these pastors would never have been able to be a part of that conversation had it not happened virtually. And so to me, those connection points are some of my favorite stories of, of things that are happening. But I mean, I could tell stories about every different place where we serve, where um, God's doing just some incredible, incredible work. I mean, uh, what I shared in Ukraine and across Europe is an incredible testimony to the work of the church together, working together to make an impact. And so, yeah, I love, I love those points of connection that are happening. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing those. It is, it is cool. And it's encouraging too. like, it's encouraging sometimes to hear stories that get us outside of our own little bubble and, and see that God is, is working. Cause sometimes we can, um, look at things. Uh, and if things are, if we don't feel like we see God working, we can, it can be discouraging, but, um, he is working and, and he's working in various ways and in various places. One of the questions I want to ask, and we've kind of, again, earlier, I think kind of danced around it, but how would you explain or help describe how cross-cultural experiences or cross-cultural awareness or um, uh, just growing in that 
Like, what's the intersection of that and a, a deeper understanding of the kingdom of God, maybe? Like, how does that, how does cross-cultural awareness or experiences enhance our understanding and view uh, of the kingdom? Um, and, and kind of with that, let's say I am a Christian who hasn't had much cross-cultural experience, and maybe I'm in uh, a small town USA and don't have a ton of diverse experiences, um, but I want to love people well. Like, what are maybe some uh, a couple key a couple keys maybe or principles for how I could engage loving people who are diverse well? What's the intersection of cross cultural ministry and the kingdom of God? How does it enhance uh, my view and understanding of the kingdom of God? And then, what are some keys for engaging people who are different uh, or loving people well who are different? I think that as we begin to understand other cultures, it can help us see where our cultural perspective may be lacking, um, where our cultural perspective maybe um, misses some of the, the beauty that is possible in the kingdom. I think that it certainly opens up our perspective of scripture, helps us understand what Jesus may be calling us to um, more and better, which I think is what we as Christians should be striving to is to understand Jesus and his call on our lives more and better. And I think that as I engage with people that are different than me, that see the world differently than I do, they can help me in that process. As they process their life and their faith, I can be challenged to understand what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of their cultural context. Um, I met a pastor. I was able to travel last uh, fall to Pakistan and visit our churches there. Uh, fascinating, beautiful place, incredible work that's happening there. And I met a gal, um, really brilliant uh, leader. Her name's Razia Mushtaq. And Razia uh, is a, uh, committed to being a leader in the church and has done that by choosing not to get married because if she were to marry, she would become um, she would just culturally would have to just fall in line with her husband. And so she's, she's chosen to stay single so that she can maintain leadership in the church. And, and I got to process with her, what her experience is as a leader in, in Pakistan. And like, one of the questions I asked is, you know, she doesn't call herself a pastor, you know, why, why aren't you a pastor? Um, and she said, well, in, in, in Pakistan, there are specific roles that a pastor fulfills. Um, and one of those is going and visiting people when they're sick in the middle of the night. And as a female, a single female, I, I can't leave and go to people's homes in the middle of the night. So um, I can continue to be a leader, but I, I, we don't use the term pastor to describe. That to me was, I mean, like those kind of moments, but helped me to, to realize how her culture is shaping who she is and how she serves, but how she's also finding ways to push against that culture to continue to serve in creative ways. Um, and to be faithful to what she feels God's called her to. Um, and, and she even shared about her, the calling she experienced was in a dream and what that is. I mean, those kind of things are just things that to me are outside of the way that I see my faith. I, I have not, I have not had Jesus come to me in a dream and speak to me. She has, and she's processed that. And so that's broadened my ability to understand how God might work in the world. And also given me a, a willingness to to experience maybe God's call on my life differently or recognize that maybe being faithful may look different than what I anticipated, but, but there are still ways to be faithful, even in the cultural context I'm a part of. And, and so little things like that are really powerful. And um, I think in terms of engagement, you know, 
when we talk about diversity, we talk about cultural awareness, like this isn't just someone who looks different than me or who grew up in a different cultural context. You know, the first place that I was really challenged by this, you know, my, I had a uh, professor, Dr. Marion Hawkins, wonderful, wonderful, still very, a good friend of mine, um, challenged me on this. I grew up in a very non-traditional church. Um, I did not know any hymns when I went to college. I was not like, this is, was not my world. We wore jeans and shorts to church. Uh, it, it was just, I mean, very, very non-traditional. I could tell you more stories about that, but it was a church plant that never got over being a church plant and they still haven't. And I love that about my home church um, in Kansas. But when I went to, to the university, Anderson University, and then got my first job, I was a youth pastor at Park Place, which is, for those that don't know, Park Place is on campus. You know, it's one of those campus churches and it is like the most academic high church. I mean, it's, it's built like a cathedral with transepts and, and, you know, I mean, it's very, uh, very high church. They do the liturgy. Um, there were 40 some ordained, former ordained pastors that went to church there and only a church of like 250. And I was an unordained pastor serving. It was, it was a wild experience, but I had decided that I was going to be countercultural to them. And I was going to wear jeans, especially even jeans that were ripped up. And, oh my gosh, I heard about it. And, um, and I was processing this with my, my professor at the time, Dr. Hawkins, and, and she did such a great job of humbling me in this experience and said, you know, Andrew, if you went to Mexico, you would not have expected people in the church that you were serving in Mexico to be like you or to accept you. You would, you would attempt to understand who they were. That doesn't mean you don't call them to something, but you would attempt to understand who they, they, they were and you would engage with them in a way that they could hear you and listen to you. She said, that's the same in the church that you're a part of. Just because you come from a church that is very low church and you're coming to a high church, you can't just come in with a wrecking ball. Like you have to be willing to step into their world, understand why they do the things the way that they do. If you ever want to engage and have a conversation with them. And it was this moment where like, again, I had always thought that cultural, cross-cultural, cultural intelligence had to do with the other or a person that is, that is ethnically religiously different than I was. And suddenly I realized it had to do also with age. It had to do with, um, uh, you know, it had to do with socioeconomic status. It had to, it, diversity has to do with so many other things than just ethnic, ethnicity, which I think is where we, we pigeonhole it. And so to me, that was a moment where I went, wow, I, if I started to look at my work at Heart Place as a cross-cultural experience, maybe that would change my perspective and the way that I engage them. And it did. Um, you know, for the time that I was there. And, and so I continue to take that with me. Every time I engage with someone that's a different gender, different ethnicity, different age, different, I mean, the, the list goes on of, uh, I have to enter in with some humility and then try to understand who they are before I just come in with my wrecking ball. Not that I should ever come in with my wrecking ball, I guess, but I, I um, yeah. So I think that that's recognizing that there are cultural differences all around us and finding ways to engage in those, you know, whether it's getting to know the the people that uh, serve you at an ethnic restaurant, whether it's uh, getting to know your neighbors, um, there are ways that we can we can serve and engage cross-culturally without ever leaving our neighborhood. Incarnational ministry is, yes, a, absolutely. is a term we throw around a lot. And I think that's like a really good example of that. Great minds think alike, Matt. I was yeah. thinking uh, <laughs> thinking about, yeah, the in, like that's what God does, right? He enters into, he enters into the human yeah. experience. And it's, I think it's important to note, he enters into it and he lives in it for 30 some years before he starts preaching to it. Absolutely. Like he, he, he doesn't enter into it 
as a wrecking ball. He enters into it and lives <laughs> it. Um, which also, as you kept saying that, I'm thinking, Matt, we might have to drop uh, uh, a Miley Cyrus. Uh, no, as soon as you said it again, I don't think that's legal, but we could. Yeah, I don't know if we can write that, right? But just to illustrate a little bit of this, the ways sometimes our narrow-minded mentalities can shape things, as you were telling that story about that woman from, was it Pakistan? Yeah. Um, who had the calling in a dream a couple years ago, I came across like a blog or something that was critiquing conversion experiences in the Middle East that were from dreams. And they were criticizing, like uh, essentially ascribing it to even like evil spirits because they're saying, oh, wow, they haven't so encountered, it is because the, the argument in this person's blog was if they haven't encountered the Jesus of the Bible, they haven't really encountered Jesus. So unless he was revealed, <laughs> But I'm like, oh my goodness, do you realize like for most of history, people were illiterate. And then whenever people talk about what's biblical, it frustrates me too when they criticize dreams. Because if you read scripture from the Old to the New Testament, it just seems to take for granted that God speaks and reveals himself through dreams. Like yes. it doesn't explain it. It just happens. And it doesn't give us like Peter's vision uh, before going to Cornelius's house in Acts. Paul's dream of the, the Macedonian man, like, uh, I feel like there's more even in the New Testament, but um, it just assumes that dreams are one of the means by which yep. God may speak or reveal himself. The Old Testament has tons of stories, you know, Egypt with uh, Joseph, yep. and Pharaoh and uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpretation of it, but, um, but it's even in the New Testament. So anyways, that's one of the ways I think our narrow mindset can then invalidate. So that person's view invalidates that woman's faith journey. Yep. And um, we have, we've had, we had multiple experiences that we, uh, Samir Salibi at, at home, which works with refugees in Paris. He talked about how, you know, one of the refugees that they ended up engaging with um, found them because when he was, when they were crossing the Mediterranean on their way um, from, I think, North Africa, um, they hit a storm, things got really crazy and uh, people started, saying Jesus's name. And he said, you know, if I, if this, if I live through this, I want to figure out who this Jesus is. He had no idea what that word meant or who that was. And when he got in, went to, went to Paris, started asking people and found Samir and his work that, I mean, is all about bringing Jesus's name and said, Hey, I encountered this name on my journey. I want to know more about who this Jesus is. And if, if we invalidate those kinds of experiences, we miss out on the ways that the Holy Spirit is bringing people to, you know, to the faith and to, and to hope in Christ. And so absolutely, I think that's, again, a great example. You're exactly right of where we have to be cautious. And, and again, there are scriptural, we can, we can talk about the scriptural references that validate that, but we have to be very cautious to invalidate other people's experiences just because it doesn't fit in with our narrow view of, of culture. We, uh, we might be running short on time, but We'll keep your uh, email and your phone number, Andrew, because this was fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I, I know I'm really chatty and I, well, I took of, us all the way to the end of time, but I, cool. I love these conversations. A lot of the things that you're passionate about, we're really passionate about too. So we'll have to, we'll have to do this again and yeah. theologize a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love that. Another, you could be a frequent guest maybe. Hey, um, anytime you let me know. Well, yeah, because I, I would love to dive more into uh, some of your dissertation work about um, justice issues yeah. and millennials, but maybe maybe that could be, now that I know that's what you did your dissertation on, we could, <laughs> we could draft questions that that 
go that direction a little more. I do want to give an opportunity. You uh, co-host, I think, a podcast. Yeah. I'd uh, love to just give you an opportunity to share about that. And then in the other places, like any other things that if you were to put a shameless plug in for, yeah. for anything you're involved uh, with or where people could find you, socials, all that stuff, go ahead. I want to give you an opportunity to put in some shameless plugs. Thank you. I appreciate that. So yeah, I'm co-host a podcast called A World of Good. Um, and it was a, a attempt a few years ago. It was, I co-hosted with my friend, Nate Chapman. We were both missions pastors. Nate was a missions pastor at uh, County Line Nate Church. Yeah. yeah, I know. See, I know okay. you have those connections. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nate Town was at County Line. I was at Church of the Crossing. Um, and then I came on here at Global and he said, hey, we should do, we started by doing some webinars and then we said, hey, we should do a podcast. I am not as, as American culturally savvy maybe. So I had no podcast knowledge, but he said, this is what people are doing and you should do it. So I joined him in that endeavor and it was a lot of fun. And the idea was, let's just travel the world. We're already traveling for our jobs. As we travel, let's get some stories that people in the U.S. want to hear. I mean, a lot of this kind of stories that we shared, that I shared here today are things that, you know, people don't get to hear about this Asia Pacific leaders that are meeting on Zoom because only a few Americans were actually a part of that. Even though there were a hundred devices connected, there were only a handful of Americans that were there because it's primarily Asian leaders. And so the, the problem is in our American church doesn't get to hear these incredible stories of what's happening. And so we wanted to share these stories and we launched February of 2020 and as you know, March, everything closed down and there, were, there was no travel. And so we had to pivot a little bit, but we're back into traveling now um, and, and recording podcasts as we do that. And so we recorded one about Ukraine recently. Um, we have two podcasts from my trip in Pakistan that have, uh, that have gone out. Um, I, I recently was in South Dakota with, our, uh, with um, some missionary folks that, that work there. I was mentioning Tim and Kim Wardell and Robin Carey Cotton and, and Tim and Kim recorded a podcast with them. So as we're traveling, we're trying to capture these stories and, and share it with the, the broader church. And you can find that podcast anywhere. You listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, um, whatever it is that, that you use. You can also go online. Chog Global is our website. You can search through our website. There's all kinds of great resources and, and connections there. But chogglobal.org slash a world of good will also take you to information about the podcast. And um, yeah, I mean, we have Global Strategy has incredible ministry that's happening. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, follow us, connect in with what we're doing. We would love, we put in daily prayer requests um, of things that are happening around the world so that at the very least, you can start a journey of trying to understand the global church by praying for the global church. I think that is a really important first step. Um, and so connect in with us that way and, um, and join us in prayer for the work that God's doing around the world that sometimes we get to be a part of and sometimes we just get to watch from the periphery. And that's beautiful in both cases that we get to see the, the work that God's doing. Well, Andrew, thank you for joining us. And yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Listeners, thank you for listening. We were talking before we started. Andrew is a man of connections. And Anthony <laughs> and I have many, many connections with him that we didn't really even know about. So um, there is a chance if you're listening that you are within six degrees of separation from Andrew here. So yes. That's yeah, that's so hilarious. Um, that's that's funny. Well, now they are if they're listening, and if that's they right. know us at all, now they are six degrees of separation. Like they know Anthony, and Anthony's talked to Andrew now. <laughs> you practically know Andrew now. There's just gonna be a mob of people in heaven, just like catching up. Like, hey, how you I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I do want to say, listeners, if you found this uh, conversation helpful, encouraging, fun, like, share. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, all of those things can help expand 
our listener base. And we also are wherever podcasts are found, Spotify, Google, Apple, um, Podbean is our host site. And so we're also on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page now. Brand new. I don't know. Awesome. I don't know how many followers we have. Probably not many at this point, but because we just. Us. <laughs> now I think it's media. <laughs> well, because we haven't broadly advertised it yet. So now we. No, you're right. I guess. So. Awesome. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening to Theologizing Life. <laughs>